to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the multipolar world struggling to be born within the context of the war in Ukraine and what that means for those of us here in the Imperial Corps. Of course, it is Tuesday, which means we'll be having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, and much, much more. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, Wikipedia defines unipolarity as a condition in which one state under the condition of international anarchy enjoys a preponderance of power and faces no competitor states. I like that they use the word anarchy in this definition because that is the United States to a T, a state exercising its power in the absence of or not recognizing any authority. The United States is the sole hegemon. That's a political state having dominant influence or authority over others, wielding its control over every other nation, even its allies, like a bully in a schoolyard. And there was a time that the modern world was a multipolar one, at least that's what we're told, where there were two superpowers competing for dominance, the U.S. and the USSR. But was the USSR really competing for world dominance? We're always told that the US and Europe had to stop Stalin because he wanted to take over Europe and then the world with communism. But Stanford historian Norman Neymark wrote in his book, Stalin and the Fate of Europe, the post-war struggle for sovereignty, that while Stalin did want to forward the interests of communism, especially in those areas under his control, those countries that were already also communist, he wanted a more flexible approach to engaging with other nations. He did not plan to have an iron curtain descend across Europe as the racist and virulently anti-communist Winston Churchill often intoned in several speeches after World War II. Rather, Neymar says, Stalin wanted to extend diplomatic engagement with other countries, but he did not want to antagonize the West to the point of being drawn into a military conflict. Because honestly, how does a nation that lost 27 million people fight for world dominance when it emerged from World War II nearly decimated? Remember that after World War II, the U.S. gave $13 billion to the European countries that suffered heavily during the war, particularly Germany through the Marshall Plan. The U.S. could do this because the U.S. economy benefited from World War II, where other countries' economies did not. And this was after the Bretton Woods Agreement between the U.S. and 44 North Atlantic countries established the Bretton Woods system and the institutions that provided the infrastructure to expand the global capitalist order. The International Monetary Fund, the IMF, the World Bank, the SWIFT financial system, and the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the IRBD. And then they established NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which they claimed existed to defend the North Atlantic countries in the alliance should they be attacked. But really, 
NATO exists to defend the global capitalist order that the Bretton Woods Agreement established and is literally the tip of the spear in imposing the imperialist will of the U.S. and its NATO allies all over the world. Stalin said that the U.S. was establishing an extension of Wall Street with the Bretton Woods system, so he opted the USSR out especially after the U.S. gave all that money to the country that caused the loss of those 27 million Soviets, Germany. Can't say Stalin was wrong. So the Soviet Union responded with the Warsaw Pact, which was a mutual defense treaty between the Soviet Union and Albania, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria, Romania, and the German Democratic Republic. That was their part of Germany that they occupied during its partition period after the war. And the Warsaw Pact was accompanied by the creation of the Council for Mutual Economic Assistance, or Comic-Con, the regional economic organization that provided support for the socialist states of Central and Eastern Europe. However, with whatever desires to expand socialism the USSR may have had, they were not operating in the same way that the U.S. was. In contrast, and this may not have always been true in every single instance, but I think it was generally accurate. The Soviet Union did what they said they would do in the Warsaw Pact, which was support socialist countries when they were under attack. And yes, the USSR did support emerging socialist struggles in the global south and on the continent of Africa. There were struggles of people who were oppressed under former colonial powers that enriched themselves through the capitalist exploitation of their people. The USSR supported some of those liberation struggles, absolutely. But it was the U.S. and its allies that embarked upon a 30-year Cold War against the USSR that included things like the nuclear arms race, the Un-American Activities Committee hearings of Senator Joseph McCarthy and the Red Scare purges and blacklists in the U.S., the Korean War, the failed Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba, and the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Vietnam War, and ironically, today is the anniversary of the last U.S. troops leaving South Vietnam in 1973, the U.S. covert operations in Nicaragua, El Salvador, Honduras, the assassination of Marxist communist African leader Patrice Lumumba in Congo, overthrowing Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, supporting the opposition to Angola's MPLA. That's just to name a few. I cannot name them all because the U.S. has done monstrous things in many countries. And interfering in their affairs under the guise of containing communism. The death toll is unfathomable. This constant aggression toward the Soviet Union and its allies, though, was honestly more than their economies could take. And it was under these conditions that the USSR invaded Afghanistan in 1979 to defend the then socialist government of that country against the anti-communist Mujahideen Muslim fundamentalists. Once again, the U.S. saw an opportunity to challenge the USSR and contain communism. So during the 10-year war, the U.S. armed and funded the Mujahideen who, with the endless supply of U.S. weaponry, drove the Soviet Union out of Afghanistan. And yes, that's how we get the Taliban. They were the anti-communist Mujahideen. The Soviet Union collapsed soon after the reunification of Germany, the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact, and because of all the money 
that was spent trying to keep up with the insane nuclear arms race that the U.S. started. None of the things the U.S. has done to contain communism in countries in the global south or on the continent of Africa or in any of the former Warsaw Pact countries has ever been censured or raised as violations of human rights or national sovereignty of other countries by the United Nations. No one has ever held the U.S. responsible for any of the war crimes they've committed in their ideological war against their manufactured boogeyman, communism. But people aren't buying what the U.S. is selling anymore. The unipolar world dominated by the U.S. and its empire of violence and lies is changing. People are deciding that they don't want this unipolar world where one superpower operates with impunity in imposing their imperialist order upon them. The birth pangs of this new multipolar world will be painful, but they are necessary to end the U.S.'s deadly stranglehold on world domination. Follow Lukeman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. Those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting a political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Dan Kabalik, author of No More War, How the West Violates International Law by Using Humanitarian Intervention to Advance Economic and Strategic Interests. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Absolutely. And Dan, uh, as the war in Ukraine continues, I feel like one of the many sort of uh, ramifications or or potential ripple effects that people have been uh, speaking to is about how uh, how it seems to be part and parcel of a struggle between the existing unipolar world under the sole control of the United States, along with its uh, junior partners and things like this, and uh, between a, a multipolar world, one that relies more on cooperation and uh, integration than the current order. And, you know, you recently published a piece about this on a covert action magazine entitled Russia's invasion of Ukraine signifies the end of an era of unipolar American power. And I was hoping you could expound uh, more upon that and why you think that's the case. Yes. Well, I think, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, of course, the U.S. was the sole superpower. And as the as the East Bloc was collapsing George H.W. Bush announced the so-called New World Order, in which the U.S. essentially claimed sole dominion over the world and that it would be the policeman of the world. And it had a couple decades uh, to serve in that role. And, of course, they basically took a sledgehammer to the world, uh, destroying one nation after another, Serbia, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, the Congo, uh, Afghanistan, and so on. And the world basically had to stand back and couldn't do anything about it uh, because the U.S. was the mightiest power. And that's obviously has shifted over time. You know, you have the emerging China and re-emerging Russia. Um, but I think that 
the confrontation in Ukraine, which is clearly a confrontation between NATO and Russia, was sadly for the Ukrainians. Um, you know, they're they're basically caught in the middle. Uh, we see the East and the global South now fighting back for the first time. And I think this is what that represents. And I think the West is shocked to see that, oh, finally someone is, has, has decided to call our bluff and said, we're not going to take this anymore. I mean, it, Russia saw, I think quite rightly, that uh, Ukraine was being used as a staging ground to destabilize Russia, if not to destroy it. There's ample evidence of that, including, by the way, Biden's own statements in Warsaw a couple of days ago, this RAND Corporation study talking about the steps to destabilize Russia, Ukraine being the chief one. You had the CIA and Eric Prince's organization, formerly known as Blackwater, uh, um, in Ukraine training extremists to, to kill Russians. You know, so it was only a matter of time before the heartland of Russia was attacked through these machinations in Ukraine, and Russia finally decided, well, uh, we're not going to we're not going to just sit here and wait for that to happen. And again, this was not something really that uh, had been done since the collapse of the Soviet Union, seeing a country defend itself in this way against the U.S. and NATO. Definitely. And, you know, one of the most potent weapons that the U.S. has been using, I think, uh, throughout this period, Dan, is that of propaganda. And as it pertains uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, specifically, um, <clears throat> excuse me, there's been this narrative put out uh, basically that, you know, Russia has been, you know, isolated uh, largely on the world stage and things like this. But I feel like if we look at um, the U.N. General uh, Assembly resolution um, to censor Russia for that invasion. I mean, there was a, a goodly number of countries that, you know, either abstained or voted against it or, you know, simply didn't uh, a vote at all. And uh, you note this in your piece. And so and and even if you look at the list, which I'm looking at now, I mean, I see Laos, I see Congo, I see Algeria, I see uh, Eritrea, North Korea, Sri Lanka, Burkina Faso. I mean, you know, uh, different countries from around the world. And I tend to think that it's no coincidence that a lot of these countries um, are in the global south. And uh, uh, what I think no small number of them very familiar familiar with the uh, U.S. interventions and U.S. interference and uh, uh, the machinations of NATO and things like that. But I mean, that's just sort of, uh, you know, kind of a, a theory, if you will, um, just off of looking at uh, uh, who's involved here. But I mean, I'm wondering what, you know, you think the, the reality is in terms of, you know, how different elements uh, uh, on the geopolitical stage, and there are a lot, and, and how, uh, and what is sort of the real picture of how Russia is being viewed internationally? Yeah, well, I think it is, we get a very uh, skewed version of that here, because essentially, you know, when we're told, oh, the world stands against Russia, the world is, is being defined as the U.S., Canada, Europe, and Australia, and nobody else. That's the world. Well, the truth is the world is a much, much bigger place than that. And outside that small area, most of the world 
is rejecting sanctions against Russia. I think China was saying something like 140-some countries are rejecting sanctions against Russia. That's out of maybe maybe just around 200 countries uh, in the world. So that's the vast majority. And, and then when you look at the, the populations and landmass represented by those countries, it's incredible, right? It's China. It's India. That's, oh, that's almost 40% of the world's population right there. It's, it's most of Africa. It's almost all of Latin America. It's most of Asia. Uh, and a significant number of countries in the Middle East, including even now Saudi Arabia, is saying it may be trading on the yuan, the Chinese yuan, not the U.S. dollar. And even Saudi Arabia and the UAE have refused Joe Biden's calls during this crisis. So, you know, there is a major shift of the world away from the West, away from the U.S., and towards the East and Global South. And I think that is where we're going to see, you know, the influence of the world shift now. Yeah, definitely. I think that's true, especially as we're seeing the, as you just mentioned, uh, Dan, the economic shift uh, that many nations are uh, engaging in away from the U.S. dominated SWIFT banking system uh, onto other financial arrangements. And I think this does bring into question, this does raise the the origins of this system and how the U.S. has been allowed to basically get away with imposing imperialism, expanding capitalism under, you know, the Bretton Woods Agreement that a lot of people don't know about, don't understand, and don't know the importance it has in uh, this particular conflict, but certainly in every conflict uh, that the U.S. has been involved in since the end of World War II, that that it is the fact that the United States has been allowed to operate around the world uh, using NATO as the uh, armed uh, wing of uh, uh, global capitalism with impunity, without any kind of uh, without any need to to answer to any kind of authority, because the U.S. has never been held to account for any of the interventions, the coups, uh, you know, the assassinations that they were involved in of uh, countries and leaders of countries that opposed the uh, expansion of the global capitalist order that the U.S. was pushing. So what part of this uh, resistance of the rest of the uh, uh, countries in the world do you think it is a part of these countries just really being tired of the U.S. being the bully in the playground that the principle of the world, the United Nations, I guess, if you want to call them that, continually ignore and and do nothing about it. And other countries are just finally saying enough. We, we're, we've just had enough. Yes. Well, and I think they, these countries have been tired for a long time, you know, by this endless war, by this economic war, warfare in which the U.S., yes, was able to punish whole countries by denying them food and medicine and destroying their economies. Um, and it wasn't so much that, the, that these countries allowed it to happen. It was that there was nothing they could really do about it because the U.S. was so powerful. And I think it is now with the emergence of Russia and China in particular 
that you now, now there's another power in the world that people can look towards to do business, to get help with the development, and frankly, to resist U.S. control, right? And I think it's only with that emergence that this has become possible. And so we certainly have seen China emerge as a major economic power over the years. And now Russia has basically shown that it is now back in terms of being a world power, certainly a military power. And so now there's the ability to push back against the U.S. I think that is the key thing. And now people are starting to do it. And as soon as they saw that chance, they grabbed at it. I mean, that's a fascinating thing. Even, again, our, one of our closest allies in the world, Saudi Arabia, as soon as they saw they didn't have to kowtow to the U.S., they said maybe they're going to even start dealing in other currency besides the U.S. dollar. That is a dramatic event. And again, I think there is so much pent-up frustration in the world with being dominated by the U.S. Now that they see, oh, maybe we don't have to do that anymore, countries are going to, uh, to welcome that. And that's what we're seeing. Yeah, definitely seems to be the case. And, you know, it's just funny because... You know, the U.S. government and its corporate-owned media platforms would have you believe that um, the entire world uh, thinks like the U.S. government. I mean, this is what we've been uh, discussing here. It's 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 a part of that uh, kind of imperial hubris that, um, you know, I think is uh, a, an integral part of what we know as American exceptionalism. You know, it, it is a presumption that American capitalism and this American style of liberal democracy is the supreme form of government uh, governance. And, uh, you know, this is just what the world agrees with. But it's just interesting to note, you know, the clarity that other governments and that other leaders have around this issue. I mean, you know, recently, uh, Evo Morales, who, of course, was the former uh, president of Bolivia, uh, displaced by a coup backed by the United States in 2019, uh, a little earlier this month, uh, denounced uh, what he called crimes against humanity committed by uh, Ukraine since uh, another U.S.-backed coup in 2014. And he also told Sputnik at the time, quote, NATO is a danger to world peace, to security. So we are in the task of reaching agreements with social movements, not only in Latin America, but in all continents to eliminate. It. If nothing is done against NATO, it will become a permanent threat to humanity. And, uh, you know, he also talked about how NATO was obviously trying to encircle Russia militarily and things like that. And there's a couple of aspects to that, I think. I mean, number uh, one, uh, we talk about, you know, what, what Abel Morales is, is, is saying here. I mean, this is obviously someone who has a, a deep understanding. I mean, better than I think most of us ever um, could. But also what strikes me about that is how he sort of emphasizes the role of social movement. And not just in the region, but around the globe to really uh, uh, fight the spread of NATO. And I think that would have to be part and parcel of uh, fighting imperialism itself. And this is a constant refrain here on By Any Means Necessary, Dan, as we tend to see um, the world's social movements as really uh, the motive force for change. And so it's just that kind of difference in worldview that people in the United States are completely cut off 
off from. And I think now more than ever, actually, I mean, we've always been sort of a deeply propagandized population, but with the censorship and suppression that we've seen in the aftermath of uh, the Ukraine war, it's, uh, I think, gotten a, a little worse. But I think this is why it's important, Dan, to really be in tune and aware of not only alternative media platforms, but to have a real idea of what's going on uh, around the world, different movements, different governments, because, you know, everyone is not operating from the same point of reference as the U.S. And I think that's been reflected in uh, sort of the picture of, of how the real international community has been responding to this invasion. Yes. Well, I think, you know, this shows, you know, the danger is when you start believing your own propaganda, right, and your own lies, uh, you're in a very dangerous position because you cannot see the world for what it is. And that's what where we're at in the United States. It claims it's this exceptional country, an essential nation, the essential nation. In fact, Obama said that, the late Madeleine Albright said that. And yet, look at how it's been exposed in the last few years. Uh, you had the COVID pandemic. The U.S. had the largest number of cases, the largest number of deaths as an absolute number and as a percentage of the population than any other country on earth, right? It, it totally fumbled that situation. It fought in Afghanistan for 20 years and then left with its tail between its legs. It tried to overthrow Assad in Syria. That failed. And again, now you even have the U.S.'s ally, the UAE, that tried to help the U.S. overthrow Assad, welcoming Assad as a head of state. And so you see that the armor that the U.S. has had is now proving to have many holes in it, and the world sees that. And the problem is most Americans don't see it. They don't see their own warts. They don't see their own society's very deep problems. And it's because of misinformation, disinformation, but also distraction, right? You have Americans who care more about a slap on the Oscars than they do 400,000 people dead in Yemen or the homelessness problem in the United States, right? And that's a society that cannot grapple with its own problems. And that's a society that won't sustain itself for long. And again, I think the world sees that and they're looking for other options. And Dan, I, I do have to wonder since you know, we here in the imperialist core are so deeply um, uh, uh, indoctrinated. What does this mean, this this birth of this multipolar world? What is this going to mean for us? Well, what I'd like it to mean, and I hope it will mean, is that, the, that Americans will start to ask serious questions about the nature of our government, who is running the show? Why aren't they taking care of the basic needs of the Amer American people while trying to stir up trouble in other parts of the globe? I hope they start asking those questions and organizing to change that situation. But I do fear that in the short term, at least, they are so ideologized and then and, and so focused on hating Russia and others hating China uh, that they won't 
engage in the type of class conflict that they need to engage in. But I do think in the medium to long term, that will happen. And that's the point of what we're doing here on shows like this, is trying to point towards the necessity of that. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Dan, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And uh, today, Jackie, I wanted to talk about uh, the seven years of the Saudi war in Yemen, recently marked uh, seven years, I believe, with it first beginning in uh, 2015. And this war that's been happening in Yemen, uh, led by Saudi Arabia, of course, has the backing of both the UK and the US governments, has caused the death of over 110,000 people, with now around two thirds of the country's uh, population uh, now dependent on international humanitarian aid on some kind or another. And, you know, uh, here just this past weekend, thousands of Yemenis took to the streets, um, including in Sana'a, the capital city, um, to mark the uh, uh, occasion and holding up pictures of uh, movement leaders uh, and things like that, you know, leaders of the uh, uh, Ansar Allah movement or the the Houthi movement. And, you know, if we look at sort of Saudi Arabia's motivation for even involved in this war and why it has the backing of the major Western governments, and it's because, you know, uh, the Saudi crown, along with, you know, the United Arab Emirates and other uh, allied countries, want to create a kind of uh, regional hegemony there. And, you know, there's been so much resistance to that in Yemen. I mean, particularly against um, the leader, uh, Abdraba Mansur Hadi, who's an ally of uh, Saudi Arabia and who's someone who is very valuable to the Saudi crown because he's seen as someone who can basically hand over Yemen and all its resources to serve not only uh, sort of, you know, the Gulf monarchies and, and those sorts of countries, but also, of course, um, the interests of the U.S. as well. And if we look at how the U.S. and how Saudi Arabia have been justifying uh, this war in Yemen, it, it says it's doing it because the, the Houthis are a proxy of Iran, right? And, uh, you know, uh, both the UK and the US have benefited, of course, you know, massively by selling weapons and things like that to Saudi Arabia and the, UA and the UAE. And they've accused Iran of supplying weapon to the Houthis. Now, you know, both the Houthis and Iran, you know, certainly have common cause in terms of their opposition to uh, Washington and also to Israel's presence in the region. But I mean, both have rejected claims of any kind of an alliance between them. And I wanted 
to talk about this, Jackie, because you noted a little earlier in the show about how I believe today uh, marks the anniversary of when the last uh, U.S. troops leave South Vietnam. And I think talking about Vietnam and talking about the war in Yemen is is very relevant right now as part and parcel of the issue of the ongoing ravages of a U.S. backed war, whether directly and indirectly, and just the incredible devastation it's left uh, not only in Yemen, although certainly there's a serious humanitarian crisis there because of all this, but literally around the world. And, you know, within the context of, you know, the, the, the Ukraine war in the United States, it's 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 like verboten to point to the U.S. and NATO as uh, the real aggressors in the situation, despite their uh, central role in instigating everything that we're seeing happening, not just in the last few weeks or over this last month or so of the war, but I mean, throughout uh, the last several decades, certainly at least uh, from the time of the fall of the Soviet Union, if we're talking about uh, modern Russia and Eastern Europe in particular. But somehow all the crimes of the U.S. and all the different wars and conflicts that it was involved in in different ways, all of that gets washed away or pushed aside or shrugged off. Or if you bring it up, you're accused, of course, of what aboutism and things like this. And this is how, you know, you know that the propaganda here in the U.S. is so potent and working so well because the American people are made to forget uh, seemingly just about everything that uh, the U.S. has done and is doing. And it's relevant um, because it is precisely the machinations of the U.S. and the encirclement by NATO that has been the major driver in all of this. And so for me, Jackie, that's why it's so important to not only be anti-war, it's good to be anti-war, but we have to also be anti-imperialist in our uh, thinking, because taking it to the level of imperialism as it regards the United States, it's what ties all of these things together because it really is a part of the system. It's a part of the capitalist system, namely. And, you know, Lenin, of course, tells us that imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism. There's a reason why I've been sort of really hammering that home uh, so much here lately on the show. And it's because understanding what imperialism is and what it isn't helps to not only clarify the situation around um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but also particularly for us inside the imperial core. I think helps us understand our duty and the role that we must play in uh, uh, really fighting this injustice wherever we find it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And, and, you know, the interesting thing about uh, the war in Yemen is that not only do so many people not understand the connection to imperialism uh, that it has and why we should be concerned about it, but a lot of people don't even know why it started, if they know about it. And it's that why, Sean, that is always where the imperialism is. Because what happened was in 2015, the people of Yemen really just protested against their, you know, corrupt government. 
that was led by uh, uh, Mansur Hadi, who is, as you said, a Saudi ally. And today, if Saudi Arabia uh, decided they wanted to uh, reinstall Hadi, they would, because they believe that he would deliver to them uh, Yemen. Uh, you know, all of the people and, and the support of Yemen. But the people of Yemen do not want Hadi as a leader. Saudi Arabia decided that they needed to punish the people of Yemen for, uh, uh, you know, not supporting their the leader that they wanted, that they practically had installed. And then because the United States is an ally of Saudi Arabia and the UK, they are in this devil's bargain together uh, to control the region. Then the US and the UK come in uh, with a military support and the utter destruction of uh, Yemen and, you know, the, the wanton murder of hundreds of thousands of people, creating a humanitarian crisis that continues while the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, make billions, maybe trillions of dollars selling weapons of war to Saudi Arabia. Uh, and meanwhile, all we hear in the news in regard to this conflict is whenever the rebels, the Houthis, that's because that's what they're called, attack the, uh, the only socialist uh, infrastructure that the U.S. has ever liked that it's seen, and that's Aramco, the uh, uh, state-owned oil uh, company that's owned by Saudi Arabia, that's all we ever hear. So all of the imperialist uh, um, interference of the U.S. in what was literally the people in Yemen's right to challenge a government that they believed that they felt was not serving them, that's where the imperialism is. The U.S. is on the side of imposing its will um, and the will of their capitalist ally, Saudi Arabia, in a country, in a region that does not want them. And this is why it is important that we mark this anniversary, th that's this commemoration, and we never forget uh, the tentacles of imperialism and what it does to actual people all around the world, Sean. Yeah, that's the that's a fact. That's a fact. And, you know, as things continue and develop, I mean, particularly as um, the United States and Joe Biden basically strongly implying that this, you know, war is going to keep going on and on and on. And, and on top of the fact of him also, you know, openly calling for regime change and then doubling down on it when uh, asked about it. Um, it's just clear that, you know, uh, uh, this understanding that we're talking about is going to be of central importance. And it also has to be a part of, I think, a real movement building effort to uh, fight imperialism. I mean, we were, you know, we've been talking to uh, Dan Kavalik on the show about uh, the multipolar world and uh, what that means in terms of uh, how people should organize and things like that. That's the part that we can play and bringing about a new world and a new society is organizing here in the United States. And I think that would have to be along a uh, working class orientation. 
while we're in relationship and in conversation and building community with movements across the world who are doing similar things. I, I truly believe that that is what's going to be uh, what makes all the difference as we enter a period that is uncertain, but I think carries a lot of opportunity. But we're going to leave it there for now here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Garafa, the editor of techforthepeople.org and co-host of the Reboot Podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be back. Thank you. Absolutely. And uh, Chris, I wanted to start today by uh, talking about and the issue of drones, uh, specifically in New York City, as uh, an Israeli company called Blue White Robotics and its Brooklyn partner called Easy Aerial um, recently approached New York City Mayor Eric Adams, himself a former cop, um, to discuss the issue of using drones to a uh, fight crime in New York City. And I was hoping to sort of break down, uh, first maybe help us understand maybe a little more about these companies and their technology and what it is that they're uh, really offering here. Yeah, so Blue White Robotics and Easy Aerial uh, related companies, uh, Blue White Robotics based in Israel, Easy Aerial, of course, in Brooklyn, uh, they really want to sell their drone surveillance technology to New York City. And this was done at the uh, NYC Israel Chamber of Commerce. There is a really big partnership and relationship between New York City and the Israeli government. In fact, uh, we've learned over the years that even New York City's police officers, in some cases, go to Israel to train. Uh, and of course, we know that Israeli police and the IDF have, you know, uh, you know, just some of the worst tactics when it comes to the oppression of Palestinians. And of course, that's how that's where some New York officers are getting some training. So what these companies do, and they fully admit this, they they, they actually uh, say that they've used their technology um, already, you know, in, in the Gaza Strip in Israel and uh, at the U.S.-Mexico border. So their drones, basically, they can fly around, they have cameras, um, and they call it situational awareness. Uh, and according to a report at militaryembedded.com, which is citing some press releases, um, they're already using these same technologies from these same companies at Travis Air Force Base in California. The 60th Air Mobility Wing and the 60th Security Forces Squadron are using this at, uh, at Travis Air Force Base and what they say is that when it gets a security trigger, like a fence alarm, fire alarm, or other distress call, the drone can automatically fly from its base station, go to the location of the distress call autonomously. So without any human sending it to where it's supposed to be, um, take pictures, do whatever else it has to do, and then come back to recharge itself and wait for the next alarm. So... 
there's some interest, obviously, from the New York City government, from New York police, uh, and particularly from uh, the former you know, cop and the mayor, Eric Adams, who has already shown himself to be a big proponent of further policing and uh, militarization of the police in New York City. So this is just, you know, this is one of the, the next really stages in surveillance uh, that we could, you know, that we'll see coming, not just in New York City, but in other locations, really monitor, you know, mirroring, mirroring the, the developments we've seen at the U.S.-Mexico border and, of course, where a lot of this technology gets tested uh, in the Gaza Strip. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, the project in New York is called the Soteria Project, and that comes from a Greek word that means deliverance from a crisis. But honestly, this there is no crisis that this technology is being is delivering anybody from. I mean, the NYPD is already already reported to be using manual drones to track large protests like the annual Pride Parade. And of course, Black Lives uh, Black Lives Matter protests. I think people would be shocked to know that uh, the NYPD is tracking pride parades. And then um, a practitioner in residence at NYU Law School's Information Law Institute said, "At a moment when agency budgets are being slashed across the city, we don't need to waste more money on high tech toys for the NYPD." I mean, just to be clear, Chris. Of all of the agency budgets that are being slashed, it's not the NYPD's budget that's being slashed. And they're already using this technology to spy on people exercising their constitutional right to protest or to gather in demonstration. And nothing good is coming out of this because it's not being used for anything good right now. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, good luck monitoring all of Pride. That's millions of people coming out to celebrate. Uh, but of course, they do it. And they do it at Black Lives Matter demonstrations. And they do it all over the place. And I think, you know, at this point, you have to assume that if you are out, especially at some sort of gathering, rally, event, whatever, uh, that, you know, there are going to be cameras in the sky. And it's actually very interesting, the language that they regularly use here, eyes in the sky, right? It, it's become sort of this common phrase, but it has a history. And there's a really interesting book by a guy named Arthur Holland McKell called Eyes in the Sky, The Secret Rise of Gorgon Stare and How It Will Watch Us All. And in that book, he outlines uh, Pentagon projects to build exactly this kind of technology, but out in space, um, you know, on, you know, planes that are flying extremely high and then, you know, the further developments to actually bring it out of the atmosphere uh, and really, you know, foreshadows the development of this kind of technology that is cheap enough to do on the ground, in fact, right over a city, rather than doing it just, uh, you know, just in space over a war zone. But they're considering our cities to be war zones. They're considering the border and Gaza uh, to be places where the only thing happening is war and conflict. They are not looking at this as, you know, places that people live and, and, and just live their lives. They're saying that you know, New York City is, is a war zone. They're saying the border is a war zone. And that's how these companies and the politicians and the bureaucrats who want to fund these things are looking at it. Definitely. And switching gears a, a little bit, Chris, this is something that uh, happened a little earlier this month, but I missed it. There was apparently a deep fake 
of uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr uh, uh, Zelensky calling for uh, Ukrainian um, troops to, you know, uh, uh, put down their guns and things like that. And basically a, uh, you know, surrender type of video. Now, I was able to actually look at uh, the video before our conversation today, and, and it does seem pretty obviously fake. I mean, I mean, you know, Zelensky, his face is moving. His body is, is pretty stiff. I don't you know, I'm not super familiar with Zelensky's tone, but I mean, reportedly, it doesn't sound much like him either. And, uh, you know, it just I mean, the whole development of deep fakes, I think, is a, a pretty frightening thing, I think, for obvious reasons. But I'm just wondering how you're uh, analyzing how it's there was at least some apparently um, attempt to sort of deploy it here in the in the Ukraine war. Yeah, this wasn't super surprising for me to see. I, I'll admit it hadn't crossed my mind that we were going to see deep fakes uh, coming out here. But, you know, in the fog of war, there is always, you know, disinformation and misinformation and, you know, every side and, you know, is trying to kind of push their their perspective and, and you know, confuse the their enemy. So seeing this deep fake, which very much was like <clears throat> fake. I mean, you could very quickly tell that this was not a real video of Zelensky, uh, that he was not telling Ukrainian troops to surrender. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure who, who set this up, right? But it was clearly, it was a very amateur move. Um, but deep fakes can be extremely convincing. They've been done extremely well uh, in the past. I mean, there have been deep fakes of Mark Zuckerberg done by uh, performance artists. Basically, there's a really great video of Mark Zuckerberg that appears to be Mark Zuckerberg because it's a deep fake, uh, basically saying like, Hey, I've stolen all your data. You trusted me. You know, you, you know, you guys are suckers. Um, there have been deep fakes of Obama. Uh, there have been, you know, many other deep fakes. And one of the worst places that deep fakes have been used is actually in, uh, pornography where people have, uh, put the faces of women that they know or are targeting onto the, uh, bodies of adult actors, uh, and then distributing that as kind of a revenge pornography thing. So seeing it now being done in war, it's not the first time it's been done in, uh, diplomatic circumstances. There have been a few, uh, countries, um, particularly in, uh, in Asia where there we've seen like in diplomatic conflict, uh, different deep fakes, but looking at it in, in the context of the Russia, Ukraine, uh, situation, I think we're, we're seeing the future of deep fakes in war. We're seeing that, you know, you can develop these very quickly if you have the skills and the skills again are out there. They, they do exist. There is software that will do this. Um, you know, you can really put information out that is extremely Con convincing. The other thing that comes to mind for me uh, is, you know, we used to look at things like COINTELPRO, right, where, you know, part of it was the U.S. government would put out, you know, maybe a fake letter or statement or just spread rumors that this particular leader or group said this thing about this other group or leader and, you know, so, you know, discord between groups that really should have been on the same side, you know, thinking about like the Black Panther Party, for example. Um, but now, what if, you know, imagine in, in the 60s, right, if they had put out a deep fake video of Fred Hampton saying something about Malcolm X, uh, you know, how dangerous that could have been. Um, so, you know, there are ways that and there are tools that can be used to detect these deep fakes. But as the technology gets better and better, you know, it, we really have to consider don't believe everything that you hear and certainly don't believe everything that you see, because, you know, we need to be 
investigating all of these videos and, and all of the information that's coming out uh, because it is easier, so much easier now to fake this kind of information. Yeah, definitely. Some of the videos that I've seen uh, where people are pointing out that uh, Zelensky is, you know, quite obviously in front of a green screen uh, with, you know, another image projected behind him to make it appear that he's outside making a statement or, or you know, something like that. Those are kind of obvious. But I, I do have to wonder, Chris, in a in a conflict like Ukraine, where the government, the U.S. government, the State Department is covering up so much information about uh, the complicity of the Ukrainian government in, you know, dealing with neo-Nazis and and the eight-year civil war that was not uh, uh, reported on at all. I mean, what what purpose could a deep fake serve in this particular case that could make the situation in Ukraine uh, regarding the Ukrainian government and Zelensky any worse than it already is? I think that's a, that's a great question, Jackie. I think the, the purpose here is to just spread more confusion, really. Well, the way a lot of these are being you know sent out is on social networks like Telegram or VK, which is a, a, a network that's you know highly used in Russia. Of course, I think Telegram is used all over the world. And people aren't you know, most people aren't sitting there analyzing it. They're saying, okay, well, here's some information. And just like other social media, you just scroll on to the next. So it's not even necessarily about the Ukrainian soldiers seeing this and saying, okay, well, Zelensky said, let's put our weapons down. It's, it's about the rest of the world seeing it. Uh, people in the U.S., people in, uh, you know, uh, countries, uh, you know, in, that are near the conflict, really trying to push, you know, into the the public mindset what the creators of it want. So, of course, the the CIA, the, you know, the State Department absolutely could and likely has used these. And we, we don't have a lot of research on how that's been done. And I think that's an important topic um, that needs to be that needs to be looked into. Because, of course, you know, again, just like we when we talk about cyber attacks, we always hear about the other countries doing it. Um, but the U.S. also works on these things and has them in their arsenal. But ultimately, the purpose of a deep fake in a situation like this is to just create more confusion, uh, not just amongst the armies involved, but amongst the public. Yeah, definitely. And uh, also, Chris, uh, there was this piece uh, the New York Times uh, published here recently uh, talking about apparently an issue with uh, uh, Spanish banks, which is to say bank banks in Spain uh, that seem to be wanting to move uh, totally online for all their services. And looks like there may be a little pushback, particularly from the um, uh, uh, older elements, the more elderly elements within uh, the, the country who may be less comfortable using these online resources. Uh, I was hoping you could uh, help us understand what's going on here and whether you think this uh, may be part of a trend of banks wanting to move more of their services online. Yeah, it's a trend of really everything moving their their services online. Uh, you know, there's so the story is about this guy Carlos San Juan de Leorden. Uh, he's a doctor. He has Parkinson's disease. He is 78 years old, and he's finding that the bank that he has used for over five decades has started, you know, closing down its ATMs, closing down its branches, cutting hours, and really pushing people to just use all of these services online. And that's, you know, very frustrating to him. Uh, the apps are hard to use. Um, and so he actually started a petition. I'm old, not an idiot. 
uh, is the title of it. And I, I just, I love that title. There is a common perspective in, in tech that, uh, you know, it's called the, the grandma problem, right? It's the, the idea is, oh, can your, is this easy enough for your grandma to use? And first of all, and that's offensive to women and old folks uh, in general, um, you know, the tech should be easy to use for anyone including people who have uh, disabilities, people who are used to doing something, you know, in person. And when we look at this, why we even shut down branches and ATMs and cut hours? Well, because it saves money. So these Spanish banks are looking and saying, well, we can save money by pushing people to an app and using customer service through the app and, you know, cutting down the hours that you can go and talk to an actual teller and perform all these business transactions that you need to do by pushing people over to, to the app that we're, or the website that we're, we're using. And we see this, you know, we see this in the U.S. as well. Uh, we see, you know, many times, not just with banks, but cable companies, gas companies, you know, used to be able to go to a kiosk or a local place to, you know, to pay your bill, to ask a question. And now you have to wait on hold for hours, or you have to try to do it through some website chat that's impossible to use and constantly disconnects you. And it's really removing a human element. And it's removing the, you know, the ability for people who may not want or be able to use technology uh, to be able to interact and get the solutions and, and resolutions they need when they're having these problems. So, you know, I, I salute this guy uh, and, and the petition. Um, and everything he's doing in order to get companies to say, you know what, yes, we could save money by moving everything from, you know, physical interactions to technology, uh, but they're ignoring the human aspect of it. Definitely. Well, thanks so much, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, March 29th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And in that time, 20 minutes, 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, you'll be able to give us a call at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Our operators are standing by. You can also check out our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. And we're streaming live on Rumble at rumble.com. Slash C as in cat slash B A M necessary. But wherever you are and however you hit us up, we most certainly want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Ajamu Baraka, national organizer of the Black Alliance for Peace. Ajamu, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Thank you. 
Absolutely. And Ajamu, today I wanted to talk about people-centered human rights and class consciousness in the time of crumbling imperialism. And this is important, I think, because we, we maintain on the show here that uh, the sort of overall deterioration we're seeing in the United States, what we call the rot, it has a material basis. It's not bad luck. Uh, it's, it's not something that's uh, uh, happening by accident, but in truth, it is really the logical conclusion of centuries of the development of this white supremacist, capitalist, imperialist system, right? With uh, a number of factors in recent history that I think have exacerbated the already uh, deeply troubling trends. And certainly the international situation and uh, the Ukraine war factor into this. And you recently published a piece on Black Agenda Report that, that speaks to some of this entitled Ukraine, War and the Challenge of Human Rights in the United States and Beyond. And one part of this that struck me, Ajamu, in your piece is when you talked about how the working class in the United States, and particularly the black working class, actually never recovered from uh, the economic crisis of 2008. And then you fast forward 12 years to 2020, where the sort of global crisis of capital is made worse by uh, the economic fallout of COVID-19. And on top of all of that, with Washington's orientation towards Ukraine and how that's reflecting economically on the people in the United States in a number of ways, I mean, it's like the hits keep coming. And it's sort of a reminder that Despite the United States's, you know, constant braying, its constant hue and cry over human rights, you know, hither, thither, and yon across this earth, that uh, it is clearly not now nor ever has been really interested and certainly not rooted in any real uh, people-centered kind of uh, human rights when you have a population whose conditions uh, are basically being cast aside all for the sake of the profits wrought from war. But I'm really wondering your uh, analysis of all this, uh, Ajamu, because I just think it's important that we sort of uh, keep our analysis, you know, within this kind of uh, classed scope, because I think it just helps things uh, appear that much more clear. Well, I think you you are absolutely right in the in your in the premises of your of your questions that it, it's really incumbent upon us, uh, the oppressed, the exploited, the colonized, to make sure that we um, engage um, a theoretical framework that does not get confused by the propaganda of the enemy that wants us to focus 
just on on individuals who want to reduce uh, struggle to uh, clash clashes of personality. Uh, they don't want us to look beneath the surface and look at these class and social forces that are locked in combat uh, among the bourgeoisie uh, against us to stand the reality that we are immersed in. So it's a constant struggle on our part to ensure that we have a, a clear perspective, that we have uh, clarity in terms of what are the real social forces impacting on the realities of our lives. And when we do that, we look for those material explanations. We look at how the how the societies organize economically. We look at uh, how how goods are produced. Uh, we look at the uh, role roles of of labor and the relationship between uh, those of us who are coerced in having to sell our labor versus who we have to work for. We basically. Uh, are in a position to purchase the value that we produce um, and live a pretty decent life, you know, while we are engaged in a, a life and death and constant struggle for survival. And then we, when we understand that relationship, and then we connect it to what people are experiencing globally, when we realize that uh, the, the vast majority of the people on this planet the planet that is now characterized by the hegemony of this relationship between uh, capital, people who have capital, and uh, people who don't have capital, that 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 uh, element of people who have capital is a, uh, a minuscule, minuscule uh, minority of the population, that the vast majority of the people are the people without capital, the people who have to work for someone else, and that the majority of those people live in abject poverty. 3.5 billion people live in abject poverty, and another almost couple of billion people live in poverty. So when we begin to understand those realities, then you begin to understand what needs to be done. So we talk about you know, what is happening concretely within the uh, borders of the U.S., and we say that that uh, when we look at our situation, we look at those economic and social and political uh, relationships, and we can conclude that hey, in 2008, with this 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 economic crisis that had a, a, a disproportionate impact on uh, uh, African people, on the African working class, on the non-European working class, and even significant elements of the white working class that the people really didn't recover economically. That what we have is these these multiple blows against uh, the working class as the capitalists uh, institute uh, new policies, new relationships in order to maintain, the, maintain their hegemony and their ability to exploit uh, the rest of us. So as we are really from the uh, economic dislocation of 2008, uh, that we never recovered from, that we look up and here we are in 2020, living off of, of debt, uh, just barely getting by. Uh, we we experience this, this this COVID situation that has a devastating impact on on the working class. The people are, are, are unable to work. Uh, the people who are are forced to go to work are, are working and 
unhealthy uh, uh, conditions. Uh, they talk about social distancing, but how do you social distance when you live in a house with three three generations uh, and two bedrooms, if you're lucky? You know, uh, we see that the people who were getting sick and dying were disproportionately our people. And we, we see this all happening in a context in which even people who are getting sick are unable to, to get health care because they don't have any, any, any uh, privately uh, 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 provided health insurance. So, you know, these are the objective reality that we face. And we've got to have a, a framework of understanding uh, that helps us to explain to ourselves what's happening, help, helps us to point the way toward how we solve these issues. And that's what we talk about, the fact that the U.S. state and this, the U.S. government and its inability to protect the fundamental human rights of, of people uh, is, in fact, a legitimate state. Um, and that you know, we understand that, you know, if we're going to have fundamental human rights, collective human rights, human rights that center the, the objective needs we have to live lives of dignity, where we have housing, where we have real social security, not when you are elder, but where you have social security throughout your life, you know, where you have the ability to be able to feed and clothe yourself, where food is, in fact, a human right, where uh, you have the right to a clean, uh, non-polluting environment. Uh, these are the kind of things that we demand, but we also understand that within the context of the people-centered human rights framework, we're not, we don't just beg the state uh, to live up to its responsibilities. We understand that we have to fight for human rights. We have to fight for people-centered human rights, and that we're not going to be able to realize people-centered human rights within the context of the continuation of a social system uh, that we just characterized. And if the only way we're going to be able to realize human rights, people-centered human rights, is through revolution. That the only way we realize human rights is to transform all of these relationships and begin the process of building socialism. So for us, people-centered human rights equals socialism. It equals uh, struggle. And it equals the agency of the of the people, the ability of the people themselves to realize their fundamental human rights and to understand uh, the power they have to transform their conditions and to transform the world. And you know, Ajamu, I feel what you're saying, but I'm I'm being the devil's advocate here. Yes, I feel what you're saying, and I understand that we need a revolution and everything, but people got to eat. And, you know, that revolution stuff ain't for everybody and whatever other excuses people come up with for not wanting to do what needs to be done to bring about this revolution. So, you know, as we're looking at the Biden administration, who for some reason people still have some weird kind of faith in, I'm not sure what, why, uh, but here is the Biden administration that promised so much, but still underpromised what people actually wanted and delivered on absolutely none of it and has now gone so far as to take $13 billion of COVID relief funds and send it to the defense contractors. 
uh, and to Ukraine for uh, aid to Ukraine, but to the defense contractors to build more bombs to be dropped in Ukraine, uh, has just increased, call for increasing the, the military budget by $31 billion uh, additional, uh, is it 13 billion or 31 billion additional dollars? What do you have to say to people who look at what the Biden administration is doing with quite literally taking money away from the people and giving it to war? But there are people who still respond with, well, not everybody's for their revolution. People got to eat. You know, that's pie in the sky socialism stuff that's never going to happen. Those are very good uh, and important observations, and 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 you know part of what you you say of course is directed toward or should be directed toward uh, those of us who have uh, stepped up to take the responsibility to try to uh, serve the people to build this new society, and, and 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 that part of that responsibility is understanding that you can't. You can't. Uh, you're not going to win people people over to revolution just through empty uh, and sometimes abstract rhetoric. That we, as the Black Panthers, used to say and reminded uh, all of us that we can't make a revolution unless we are able to survive. And so we have some some basic survival issues we have to address. And the responsibility of anyone who is attempting to try to organize our people to to make revolution is to recognize that the first step has to be to uh, ground yourself in your local communities to organize structures that allow you to not only engage in political educational work, but also to begin to address the material needs of your community. That we've got to, uh, to the extent possible, take control over the institutions and structures in our communities. You know, one of the things that came out of COVID that was very interesting was that uh, for the first time, many people uh, in a couple of generations uh, got involved in these kind of survival programs. You know, they were referred to as mutual aid. But what they allowed was for people for the first time to go out and start knocking on doors uh, to, uh, to assess uh, the needs of people in their community to uh, organize uh, 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 food uh, distribution processes uh, to to find out uh, you know who was sitting up in their apartment uh, you know without heat or where the elders were that couldn't get out to to shop and to make sure that that was taken care of to step to to look in on on the youth. Uh, they are now stuck in these houses because they couldn't go to school, and, and to know what their needs were and what the needs of their of their of their parents were. Many of them, that, many of them were still forced to work while the kids were in the houses because they couldn't go to school. So, this was an educational experience for many many people, uh, and it helped people also to, in the process of serving, develop new new skills, new sets of skills. We've got to continue that. You know, when you look at the process of building a revolutionary opposition, you have to have structures, uh, organizations that are able to address all of these needs. We have to have the ability to organize after-school uh, tutorial programs, to uh, to organize uh, weekend uh, farmers markets uh, and health fairs. Uh, you know, you uh, encourage 
and uh, these, these these bourgeois doctors to give up some of their time to come to the community and provide health services, you know, uh, to, to even engage in community cleanups. But all of this stuff is part of how you build build structure because you can't win people over unless you are there and the people see you are, in fact, attempting to serve uh, and you are bringing in the youth into your organizations. Uh, you are building uh, democratic processes where people can, in fact, uh, take uh, uh, part in uh, democratic decision-making of your community. All of these things are part of building a, a revolutionary opposition. Uh, and so, yes, you know, you do that uh, and you with the uh, understanding that you all are transforming your conditions and the understanding that this is a protracted struggle. Um, and you, you build this, you know, step-by-step, uh, block-by-block, person-by-person, uh, community-by-community. And when people understand that and understand that this is not always some glorious and glamorous kind of activity, but that what is required is persistent, systematic organizing and political education, then you're able to have a cadre that can sustain uh, the struggle and sustain the repression that uh, the struggle is 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 currently under uh, and will probably intensify as we as we go forward. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Ajamu Baraka. And Ajamu, you know, we've been talking about sort of uh, a kind of, you know, working class analysis of, you could say, the internal situation in the United States at this point and what has brought us to that point. But I'm curious, how do we internationalize that? same sort of class analysis, you know what I mean? Particularly with the uh, Ukraine war, the coverage of, of which has been, you know, profoundly uh, uh, Eurocentric, I think, in, in a number of ways. And I mean, you know, I think it's safe to say at this point that, you know, the U.S. is engaged in a kind of uh, hybrid warfare. I mean, just using every conceivable tool to uh to push a narrative and to continue this uh war and to continue to skew the consciousness of uh the people of the west including the united states but also of course to protect capital and so understanding that war always always uh impacts the poor working and oppressed people uh the most i mean how do we reconcile that with uh, uh the war in ukraine understanding the motivations of the imperialists of the West and trying to drive that war? Well, I think we have some opportunities, uh, Sean and Jackie, uh, to uh, to point out 
the uh, contradictions of uh, this struggle and Ukraine becoming such a centerpiece of, of European thought um, and attention um, uh, versus the situation that the people are facing um, in this country, the working class is facing in this country. We talked a little bit about the, the impact of the, these, the economic crisis of, of 20, uh, 2008, uh, 2009, uh, and then 2020, uh, and the fact that we have not recovered at all um, coming out of this, this COVID thing that we really haven't come out of. But uh, we, we not only uh, have not recovered, but we are feeling the additional pressure of of the the capitalist contradiction with the inflation uh, that has been imposed on the working class and inflation that uh, uh, translates into a decline in your wages. Because when your ability to consume or to buy the necessary uh, products you need to survive uh, costs more, while your wages continue to be at, a, at the same level, you have you have experienced a decline in wages. Uh, so we have to deal with that reality. And now we've been asked uh, by the capitalist class to make more sacrifices that not only have we not uh, recovered and we are suffering from the consequences of, of a, a uh, capitalist uh, uh, contrived inflation, now, uh, uh, Uncle Joe is telling the working class that we have to survive, we have to uh, sacrifice even more because of a war that they manufactured um, in, in Ukraine. That as a consequence of this war and this strange and, and, and contradictory attempt to try to impose uh, sanctions on uh, Russia, uh, fully integrated into the global economy. Uh, unlike you know some of these uh, small nations that the U.S. is able to bully uh, and to uh, undermine effectively without any kind of real consequence on the U.S. economy, this this set of sanctions uh, is having a real impact on the entire global economy. Uh, that includes, of course, the U.S. So we're going to experience, and people are already experiencing this this uh, uh, dramatic increase in the price of gas uh, in a economy, in a society in which, for many people, uh, you have no uh, option. You have to have a car um, to get around, you, to get to work. Uh, and we have seen from Katrina, for example, that if you don't have transportation, it can not only be an inconvenience, it can cost you your life. Okay. Here we are, we have, we're dependent on um, these private uh, vehicles, and uh, now the, the gas is going through the roof, and you have uh, rising gas prices, and now we have, and we've been having rising food prices, but those food prices will, will increase even more as the, the consequence of the uh, almost 30% of global wheat production coming from Ukraine and Russia is in essence off you know, out of the market. So you know, Biden says, "Well, these are some of the uh, uh, sacrifices we have to make for freedom." Excuse me, freedom? Are we free in the U.S.? 
you know, the working class still getting kicked up the, the back end, you know, by, by, by the bosses and by the system. And they thought us we have to sacrifice. But guess who's going to be get over like a fat rat? Uh, the uh, military industrial complex, uh, the owners of, 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 of global energy, um, you know, the same people who have been getting over even in the midst of the COVID uh, crisis. You had uh, this, this obscene increase in the, in the wealth, and, in wealth and income of, of the 1%. So, you know, this, this is the hustle that they are throwing on us. But I, I'm going to tell you, and I think everybody who is, is, is in listening range of, of this program understands, we know that there are historical experiences where people have gone to the streets uh, as a consequence of, of increases in petroleum and gas prices and food prices. But there have been revolutions that have been sparked as a consequence of that. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's, there, there's a real possibility that uh, people are not going to go for this, um, this, this hustle uh, being imposed on us. And they, the, the consciousness, I think, has shifted in a direction that I don't think people really understand yet. Yeah, yeah we are getting tricked uh, to a certain extent into, you know, uh, supporting this, this, this war in Ukraine. I mean, look, it's difficult. I mean, you've been bombarded with these images, these morality plays every evening on, 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 on television, you know, but, you know, you know, in between all of that, people are raising serious questions. The weird thing about uh, what's happening in the U.S. is that some of, the, some of the people are raising the most serious questions who are still have access to, uh, quote-unquote, mainstream media are, in fact, folks on Fox News. So you have the you, you have the Democrat Party now becoming the party of, of austerity and sacrifice, um, and the Republicans uh, being the party uh, talking about uh, you know what kind of impact this is having on the working class, and why are the why is the working class being off being being suggested that they need to sacrifice uh, for for this war in Ukraine? So you know, and all of that though, we've got to sharpen our ability to be able and our capacity to be able to provide a, a more accurate understanding of what is unfolding and what we need to do. Uh, but it's difficult. It's difficult because, you know, as we said earlier, the kind of, 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 of stranglehold they have on the narrative and the systematic uh, censorship that they are involved in, pushing out voices or attempting to push out voices like uh, by any means necessary in all of the various uh, spaces where we are, are able to bring uh, alternative analysis uh, and information to, to, to activists, uh, to buddy radicals. Uh, this, this situation uh, is, is beginning to become a, a situation of, of totalitarian dominance uh, that's making it even more difficult for us to, to, to reach our people and to build an effective opposition. So, yes, we are facing serious uh, conditions and some serious challenges, but you know, we're gonna overcome all of that. Even we got to go back to old school style organizing, which I think is better anyway. Yeah, I, you know, I got to agree with you on the old school organizing thing because as much as I love social media, and I, and I understand there's a need for it, particularly since we are still in a pandemic. I don't care what anybody says; it's still raging out there with a new variant uh, uh, out there. Also, there is really nothing I think that comes close to 
getting a bunch of people together in a space, uh, you know, meeting room, auditorium or whatever, what have you, and just hashing out these ideas and organizing that way. I, I think there is uh, th- there's nothing that that comes close to that. And I hope that we will get back to a lot of that because I, I feel like that's kind of the only way that we're going to not be uh, co-opted so easily by the state. Ajamu. And and a part of that co-optation I see in what you were talking about, the the tricks that are being played on folks uh, in the media with the propaganda. And one of those tricks seems to me to be like the the whitewashing of the neo-Nazis and how all of a sudden, I mean, in this country, we have a whole inter cottage industry and entertainment of World War II movies that lionize American forces as if they were the liberators of uh, the concentration camps and if they were the ones, and as if they were the ones who won World War II, but it was the Soviet Red Army that liberated the concentration camps and they were the ones who, quote unquote, won World War II. But all of a sudden now, Ajamu, a little bit of Nazism is okay. Neo-Nazis are fine. And, and Somehow that is not shocking to me among most Americans, certainly not among the right. The thing I think that has shocked me is that that sentiment seems to be coming also from the so-called left, whereas where you're talking about Fox News was the ones, they are the ones who are raising, you know, the the defense of, you know, why should the working class pay more money for gas and food? Uh, for so-called freedom. Why should the working class bear the brunt? We're not hearing that argument from the left because so many on the left are like totally okay with a little bit of fascism. And and, and I just don't know what to do with that, Ajamu. I, I just look at that as, for me, um, confirmation of what I've been saying about a lot of what Abdus called the latte left. That when it, cam- when it comes to certain issues, um, they are not to be relied upon because they will go with their comfort rather than with actual principles. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, on this phenomenon. Well, I, 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 my thoughts are uh, basically in alignment with, with, with your, your analysis. That, um, we are almost in a situation now where we are almost by ourselves in terms of of. of uh, opposing U.S. imperialism and and and, and, and global capitalism, because the left and the northern countries have found so many creative ways to align themselves with the interests of their bourgeoisie, um, and in, in doing that, they then uh, identified a, 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 a wage war against us, who are now prepared to uh, to capitulate. Uh, to to reaction, uh, so it becomes very very uh, very very difficult for us. But we you know we have to we have to continue to uh, do what we have to do. Uh, so yes, it is is a is a very difficult situation. But is that one that we can't uh, deal with? For example, you know the 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 the, the budget issue that you alluded to earlier, raising the fact that uh, the. The liberals have uh, followed behind uh, their leadership, uh, Joe Biden, in pushing for $813 billion defense uh, uh, budget. So these are real cracks 
these are real points of vulnerability, I believe. Uh, but we're being asked to to sacrifice uh, to allow for the coffers to be uh, directed for war, while they turn around and tell us there's no money uh, to provide uh, prepaid support or uh, the three hundred dollars a month that, that many families were getting uh, for uh, for 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 their for their children through the child tax credit. Uh, that there's no resources there for elder uh, uh, care, uh, and that, that we we can just stop dreaming about the possibility or thinking about the possibility of of things like paid leave, because there's just no resources for those kinds of things. People are, are, are making the connections, and uh, it, these are going to be points of contention uh, as the situation becomes even more dire, and it will be as as these food prices continue to go up. So the left is collaborating with the bourgeoisie. You know, they're going to uh, continue to lose credibility. Um, and those of us who are organizing uh, real alternative structures and forces are going to be a better position to uh, uh, to to take the struggle uh, forward. But yeah, this collaborative left in these northern countries uh, have, have gotten to a point where they are really of no value uh, to us at all because uh, they're not prepared to uh, deal with their own uh, comforts, uh, elements of the white left. Uh, instead of them uh, being able to confront directly the uh, uh, continued sort of uh, re relegitimation of white supremacist uh, ideology, uh, they don't do that because they're scared to go and organize in white communities. It would be all about our Kool-Aid, you know. So, so these are contradictions we have to have to deal with, but we have to deal with these because our survival is is at stake. So, you know, the issue of the budget is something we have to really deal with, um, and the issue of our continued disorganization uh, we have to deal with, and we have to win people over to uh, resisting the growing repression uh, that we are facing. Uh, and again, it's going to be difficult because we, you know, here we are, you got you to be on Rumble now because you get kicked off of YouTube. Uh, you know, we can feel the noose, if you will, <laughs> tightening. And then we got nooses. You know, they, you know, it got loosened up a little bit a few decades ago, but they never were taken off because we are a captured, uh, exploited, uh, people, and but now they're tightening that noose because they're prepared to do whatever they need to do uh, to not only maintain their hegemony but to stamp out any opposition. Um, and so, when we understand that, as I keep on saying, then we understand what we got to do. A noose—that's really powerful to me when you think of the black experience uh, in the United States over the course of these last several centuries, suffering under this white supremacist capitalist system as a noose. I mean, it's apropos, I think, on a number of levels, certainly given uh, the, the wretched history of lynching and, and racist terror in this country. But also, I mean, think about what a noose does. It makes you incapable to speak. Or, or makes it difficult to, to breathe and these sorts of things. And 
I think that's precisely what the system is in place to do, is to suffocate us, to crush us, to try to stamp out our humanity. That's why white supremacy, why white supremacy is so um, integral to the maintenance of this capitalist system. It is so important that, uh, you know, that we believe that we're not worthy of human consideration or equity or any sort of equal treatment. This is what inculcates such profound, I think, psychological issues amongst oppressed people. You know, I often quote Frantz Fanon when he said, the, the oppressed believe the worst about themselves. And that's no accident. That is a direct result of the colonial process, right? You have to make the, the colonized or the oppressed or the exploited group question their own humanity, question their own intelligence all out of an effort to try to keep from uh, uh, any real resistance from building. But you know, that's never really worked with us because from the time the European came to the coast of Africa to kidnap us, to force us to this country, into this hemisphere, to not only build what became the United States, but to lay the groundwork for capitalism as a worldwide uh, uh, economic force from that time. We have resisted nonstop, right? And like with anything, there's ebbs and flows and, and peaks and valleys and periods that are more active than others, but we have refused to succumb to the noose of this white supremacist capitalist order. And I think that the only way that not only that we'll be free from the noose, but to destroy it, to burn it, turn into a, a heap of ashes, this form of society, right? The only way that that can happen, I think, is with the transformation of society itself. A new economic order, a new social order, a new political order. where. People's humanity is not undermined and attacked and stigmatized, but rather put at the center of what society is built around and have humanity's needs be the foremost priority of that new society. And as Ajamu was saying, we'll only get there if we organize. We can get there. But first, we have to organize. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 2. 
0252113 I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Ajamu Baraka is here. And uh, switching gears a little bit here, um, Ajamu, I wanted to talk some about some developments in Colombian politics. As uh, Francia Marquez, a black woman who's running for vice president, of Colombia, uh, with a party I believe is called the Historical Pact, um, has been receiving death threats for her uh, uh, candidacy and, and things like this. And we've been talking a little bit on the show about the upcoming uh, uh, elections in Colombia after some years under uh, uh, you know Ivan Duque and these sorts of uh, U.S.-backed leaders. I think him just being a, a one of. Uh, no small number that we can name. But uh, I was hoping you could sort of uh, help us understand uh, the situation here, Ajamu, and what is the relevance of this black woman running for vice president in Colombia, uh, 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 you know, getting these kinds of attacks? Well, first, let me, let me uh, just sort of kind of share the importance of what's happening with Francia. Um, uh, it's been it's quite historic to have uh, a black woman here in Latin America uh, on a ticket uh, in a country like Colombia, as important as Colombia is here in the region, um, where when there is a real possibility that this ticket, in fact, may win in, in May. And if that happens, that will be a historic shift um, in the politics here in the region. And the, I mean, the the politics are already shifting, and the temporary setbacks um, a few years ago have been reversed. Temporary setbacks, meaning some of the the uh, attempts by the part of on the part of the enemy to uh, try to uh, reverse the trajectory of uh, progressive and radical politics in the region, with the attempted uh, coup in Venezuela and the version and and attempts coup in Nicaragua, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but this this possibility of this historic pact, and the historic pact is, is not a party. It's, in fact, a coalition of of, of left forces uh, that came together uh, that organized a process in which they're going to pull all of their resources uh, and human resources together behind uh, a, a ticket. And they had their own uh, pri- uh, primary process. And in that primary process, uh, Gustavo um, uh, uh, Petro uh, is the, uh, uh, the the presidential candidate, um, and uh, Francia Marquez ended up being the. Uh, she came in second uh, with more votes than than everybody in the on the opposite side in their primaries. Uh, she came in second with uh, over eight hundred thousand votes. Uh, and she was added to the ticket as the VP. Uh, so this is this is interesting and important because in Colombia, presidents only serve one term. So if they were to win, uh, and uh, friends, it would be very much uh, uh, situated to, in fact, uh, run for the presidency. Uh, in four years. Now, this is important for so many different reasons, not just being a part of this ticket. But if this, frankly, is a product of the black movement here, uh, and uh, she's a, a member of the Black Unity Process, 
uh, has been involved in uh, intense and uh, very important struggles for more than for more than 25 years, as a matter of fact, almost 30. Um, uh, and uh, she's been trained by the movement, and so this this electoral process is seen as uh, part of the movement building process uh, here uh, in the country. Um, and the death threats that she is receiving now, uh, in fact, are not net new threats in the sense that uh, Francia, with no other PCN uh, activists, uh, are forced to move with security uh, because they are, they have received death threats uh, over the last few years. In fact, some of your listeners might remember that in uh, 2019, uh, Francie, along with other uh, elements of the PCN membership leadership, were uh, meeting, uh, and uh, the meeting was attacked uh, by two assailants uh, armed with automatic weapons and grenades. And luckily, the attack took place in a place situation where they were uh, sort of they were in the open. In fact, I mean, there was you know where, where they at had a, a overhead sort of uh, a protective kind of thing, but they were. Uh, they weren't enclosed. So when the assailants uh, threw that grenade, they threw two of them. Uh, they, they didn't end up killing anybody, but also what the assailants apparently didn't do, they didn't do their homework. Uh, and so they didn't realize that what they were walking into uh, was, in fact, going to be a firefight uh, because there are security measures put in place uh, to prevent these kinds of attacks. So the authorities... There was something like six or seven rounds that were uh, fired off that day. Uh, two people got shot, or two of the guards. Uh, but luckily, none of the leadership was, was harmed. So this is a ongoing um, situation here in Colombia. As your list, listeners know, uh, Colombia is one of the most dangerous places on the planet for uh, social uh, leaders. Um and uh, that continues, especially with all of, of the political changes that have taken place with the, the demobilization of FARC, uh, with the intense intensifying war taking place with the other main guerrilla group and with the paramilitaries uh, that are involved in uh, the narco-trafficking stuff uh, and the power vacuums that we have in, in the countryside um, is very, very dangerous. In fact, uh, November 28th, two of our uh, activists were, uh, PCN activists, were kidnapped. Uh, and, and these are very, very, very important um, uh, leaders. Uh, and um, they have not, of course, returned. We know that objectively that they are not going to return. Uh, but this is a very, very, you know, it's a dangerous situation right now. So Francia is, 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 is positioned. Uh, to to um, to make history, the black movement is is making history. Uh, we just want to make sure that she, you know, she's protected. Uh, and so it's important that people understand and begin to follow what's happening here uh, in this country. It, it, one last point I want to make on this: we're watching very closely because the Biden administration did something very odd. About three weeks ago, almost a month ago, uh, about three weeks ago, right before the uh, the primaries took place, uh, the administration announced this new 
a global relationship, NATO, a U.S. relationship uh, with Colombia. And many of us believe that this was a signal to the right, uh, a signal to those right-wing elements in the, in the military uh, that uh, if there was, in fact, a historic shift to the left politically, that, uh, you know, uh, if if the right needed to do what it needed to do to maintain itself, uh, they'll probably get the uh, tacit support uh, from the champion human rights of uh, the U.S. Uh, and the Biden administration. So it's a very, very uh, dangerous situation, and we need people to be aware of what's happening because uh, we, we have to put a break on the rogue statism of the U.S. because everybody suffers. And people sometimes suffer in silence because with all those things happening in the world, you, people, you just can't get the word out. You got people suffering in Haiti with the phony elections coming up now. You got what's unfolding here in uh, Ajamu, I think maybe we uh, lost you a little bit there. But, yeah, I mean, definitely, uh, Jackie, important to sort of um, be in tune with what's happening. I mean, not only in Colombia for all the reasons that uh, uh, Ajamu laid out, but just to get sort of a, a clearer picture of what's sort of uh, happening in the international realm uh, in general, and particularly when we know that the U.S. has, you know, backed these different Colombian governments. I mean, I think it was um, Hugo Chavez that called Colombia the Israel of uh, Latin America, sort of meaning that, you know, it's like a U.S. imperialist beachhead there in the region and there to, you know, uh, kind of as a bludgeon against the progressive and uh, left-leaning governments with uh, uh, in the region as well. And this is not something that you know, we really hear about that much uh, here in the U.S. Uh, in, in terms of these uh, uh, goings on. But uh, even still, I mean, I think uh, uh, to discuss it in this way is important because, uh, you know, I think having that context, both in terms of, you know, what it means for this black woman to run for vice president of this country and why they are texting that they are. And of course, we know about uh, a lot of the different social movements in Colombia as well that have suffered greatly, uh, as Ajamu uh, uh, pointed out. And I don't know, I just think that within uh, the context of how we discuss um, the geopolitical situation in general, just uh, sort of important to take note of, you know? Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, and, and it's one thing to to be paying attention to these issues as we we have to right because we're journalists and we do it's our it's part of our job you know to to pay attention to what imperialism is doing around the world but also because we are anti-imperialists and we understand that there are international implications we're not fighting this beast only for the betterment of people within the beating heart of imperialism. We certainly are, but we are also fighting imperialism uh, to end it for all of the people around the world, mostly working class, poor, colonized and oppressed people around the world who are still suffering under uh, the uh, uh, attacks of imperialism. And, and Colombia is one of those places. It's 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 something to to be in Colombia and go to the beach, Sean, um, and uh, go across the bridge and see the military units that are still there from the protests uh, that that happened in and I think 2019, where the 
people held that bridge and shut that port down for 22 days. Um, it's it's something to see uh, in 2022 what occupation looks like in another country where, you know, we say all the time here in D.C., you go to southeast and northeast and you see the police as an occupying force on any corner. It's another thing to go to another country and to see the military literally occupying uh, an area to respond immediately if the people decide to rise up again. And, and it, it, is, it is hard not to make the connections uh, between what, what our money does when it's given to the police in our communities and how it looks when it's given to other countries for their militaries in communities with people that look like us there, Sean. Definitely. Ajama, I think we got you uh, back here. I want to give you a chance to finish your thought. Just, just quickly. That's why, that's why this, this campaign is so incredibly important because Francie is, is running under a peace uh, agenda. And this is going to be really, really important because the peace process has never really been implemented uh, correctly. Uh, so in his last 30 seconds, I want people just to understand there's the peace process here. Uh, and that uh, we'll be uh, explaining more about that and its implications for uh, for the black communities uh, and really for the region uh, as we as we go forward here. So thanks a lot for uh, inviting me again, folks. We appreciate the conversation. Sorry about the connectivity issues. You know, I am sitting here in, in the Global South. Uh, I hope to get a chance to come back and talk about what's happening in Colombia again in with even more detail. Absolutely. And, you know, what Jackie said a moment ago, I think, is uh, really important in terms of, you know, who benefits from a global struggle. Because, I mean, one thing that I think you realize the deeper you get into things is how, you know, you really are connected to uh, what's happening with uh, people all over the world. I think in the United States, particularly, you know, sort there's like a mental block on what's going on on the rest of uh, in the rest of the world. But I mean, as Martin Luther, as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would say, we are caught up in a single garment of destiny precisely because we're all living under these same systems that are exploiting us in all of these different ways. And so it then only makes sense to gather and organize and to really mass up with the struggling peoples of the world uh, to fight a collective fight against all these uh, 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 different systems and institutions that are trying to stamp out our uh, humanity and trying to rob us of our livelihoods and things like that. It's difficult, but must be done. Well, we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thank you, Jamu Baraka, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.